Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, brought to you by two board-certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Samira Arman, also known as the PD Pals, as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at the PD Pals or find us online at www.thepdpals.com. Hello, Sammy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. <laughs> Just to recap for our audience, we are recording this podcast in the new year, 2021, and we are super excited because 2020 is behind us, right? Yeah, careful. Don't get too excited. <laughs> no, I'm not too excited. But, you know, hopeful, hopeful and grateful that we made it here. And um, so that we have recorded now about half a dozen podcasts, just to put it in perspective for our listeners. So thank you all for supporting us and listening to us so far and for following us on social media and at our website. Um, But I did notice one thing in this episode, in the little intro, I noticed that you changed your name, maybe. I did. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yes, I just got married. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Where was actually, my invite? <laughs> it's actually the opposite. Uh, no, wait, the opposite would be getting divorced. I didn't get divorced, but I uh, went back to my roots. I went back to uh, going by my maiden name. Ah, yes, so, and I love it. I know you're dying to ask me why, uh, yes. so please allow me to tell you. <laughs> so, uh Basically, you know, Armin is my maiden name and uh, Hodges is my married name. And actually, I've never really changed my name. Um, So, I mean, I loosely go by Hodges, um, but I, you know, legally still go by Armin. I practice under the name of Dr. Armin. And uh, when we started this PD Pals venture, I thought that it would be a good way to kind of separate the two entities. I would be Dr. Hodges uh, online and then Dr. Armin in practice. And then it clearly became very evident right away that that was very confusing. Uh, not to mention that uh, as a kind of a feminist point of view, I would say I'm the last uh, of the Armins. I'm the only daughter of the only son. So the Armin name dies with me. So I'm going to take it everywhere I go. <laughs> That's right. I love it. No, I am used to calling you Dr. Armin too. So uh, regardless of what we call you, we still love you. So thank you for (laughs) clarifying. Why, thank you. (laughs) So do you want to tell us what this episode is about? This is a special one that we thought about doing just for our listeners. We did. Uh, This is one that I'm so super excited about because uh, we did our first uh, AMA but actually in uh, the medical world, AMA is uh, against medical advice. So the first time uh, my one of my friends told me about AMA, I was really confused. But apparently online, AMA means ask me anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did an AUA and ask us anything. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to take the top five questions we were answered. Uh, sorry, the top five questions we were asked and then answer them on this podcast. And they're actually really, really good questions. So I think our readers are going to love this episode. 
Yeah. And I just want to say thank you to everyone that responded uh, on our social media and sent us questions. And some of them were great questions and big topics. And we will definitely cover some of those in our future podcasts. But we thought these were a great place to start. Um, and I think they're going to be really helpful, hopefully, for people. I totally agree. I totally agree. So um, we're going to do five hot questions. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to address all of them in, in good detail. I think people will learn a ton in this episode. And uh, I did want to say one thing when you mentioned 2021, I think one of my favorite memes or, or quotes was, you know, that we were just going to all going to enter really quietly. We weren't going to touch anything. <laughs> we were, <laughs> were going to be really calm about it. So I agree. Um, hopefully this year is going to be one that's going to bring everyone a lot of happiness and um, uh, happiness. Yes. So should I start with the first question? Yes. Okay. So the first question, and actually I love, love, love this question because we get asked this a lot in clinic too, is should I put my child in daycare or not? Yes, this is definitely a tough one. Um, I think we all pediatricians and physicians have lots of thoughts and ideas about school and daycare and early education. So we have a lot to say about it. But typically how I approach this question, I think, I don't know if it's similar to what you say, um, but we all know that it takes a village to raise children, right? Um, from Absolutely. my personal experience, I can tell our listeners that I never went to daycare. Um, hopefully I turned out okay. <laughs> oh my God, this explains so much. <laughs> <laughs> now are you getting it? <laughs> so I never went to daycare. Um, I was lucky enough. My mom uh, stayed at home in the in this first few years of my childhood. And then later she worked when I was in school. Um, and so I definitely think different, different scenarios for different people. And, um, the biggest thing that I stress to my families is first, you have to look at your individual circumstances, right? Um, we at the PD pals want to make sure that all parents are guilt-free, um, when making these decisions, because, um, you don't want to feel guilty about whatever circumstances you have and decisions you have to make for your family based on your need. Um, I was lucky to be around lots of family when my parents, were raising me. Um, I, I was always around cousins and grandparents. And a lot of parents in our current society necessarily don't have those resources at the moment and are single parents or are working several jobs. And so um, childcare becomes a very important part, um, a, a very something very important that they rely on. So for me, I think my biggest message is uh, do what works for your family first and foremost, and then kind of based on what you are able to do for your family, um, then, you know, if you have a choice, then we go from there. I don't know if you agree with that. Oh, I love that. I mean, uh, your one size doesn't fit all philosophy uh, is exactly what the PD Pals is all about. No two families are alike. No two scenarios are alike. We've got working parents. We've got stay-at-home parents. We've got finances. We've got family or lack of support, you know. So there's so much variability. We could not possibly ask every person to be the same. It'd be really boring if every person was the same. Right. So uh, you, can't, you can't tell someone what to do in their scenario because that's their life. And right. uh, they have to make the decision that's best for them. And I totally agree. 100% guilt-free. 
Now, I will say I was in the scenario where I had to send my two girls to daycare, worked out just fine. Uh, they got sick a lot, especially my second born. Uh, I, I feel like second born children always get more sick than the first born just because they get exposed to twice the germs. They get exposed to their own germs and then whatever the sibling brought home to. Mm-hmm. So um, but so it, it was definitely challenging and there were definitely times where I cried. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that happens with everyone. Uh, So there are definitely times where I was like, what am I doing? Do I want to do, do I want to just give up and do I want to stay home? Do I want to get a nanny? Um, Do I want to beg my mom to move countries and just come raise my kids for me? So, uh, you know, just to let everyone know that it's very normal to feel that way. But I think the main thing that I really want to touch upon is The reason we get asked if people should put their kid in daycare or not most of the time is because they want to know if it's a benefit for socializing and they want to know about the whole germ exposure. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know what you say about that. Yeah, definitely with all of the studies, they do, most of the studies do show that um, a high quality center-based childcare, um, you know, which is variable, right? You can kind of judge what is high quality and what is not. But um, some of the studies that I was looking at um, do do show that it does help with um, social development, emotional development, and socialization early on. Um, I think most of the things that I tell them that after the age of one, between one to three, um, a lot of those social development skills uh, really develop. So I think that, um, you know, there was one particular study Study, a really interesting study came from actually where you grow up, grew up, France, um, uh, that I read about. And um, they had mentioned that um, they had studied. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if you're about it, but it was interesting to me because I think different countries approach childcare differently. And some countries do provide um, more um, uh, uh, like a state-based, uh, they offer state-based uh, programs for childcare. And that particular study showed that there was about 1500 children that they looked at from birth to eight years of age uh, to understand if children that were put in daycare before the age of three uh, had any difference in development over children that stayed home, either with a parent, a family member, a babysitter, uh, or uh, another small uh, base childcare uh, setting at home. And the study found that those children that were in a high quality center-based care, they had lower rates of emotional conduct, relationship and attention problems later in life. Um, And so the researchers did notice that those children had better social and behavioral outcomes later on. Now, given that there's, yeah, given that there's lots of variables, I think, right? Um, Because daycare centers, I feel, are not replacing parenting. They're not replacing parents, right? So uh, a lot of that social, emotional, behavioral development is going to happen at home as well. Um, And so I think a lot of the studies that, that I've read show the benefits of daycare. But again, it is not something that you must have to have socially and emotionally developed children. I don't know if if you agree. I totally agree. And I love that. That's a, that's a great study for me. There are two things. Uh, I'll give my personal opinion on this. And again, I would have to know the person's situation before I would be able to give 
uh, you know, a personalized opinion for that scenario. But just in general, what I usually tell people is that I'm fine if they want to stay at home and they want to take advantage of having a stay at home parent. Uh, that's great. And, and how lucky that they could be for that privilege. But after a certain age, and, and it kind of varies on the child, but I like how you said between the ages of one and three, I feel like that's vague enough <laughs> that if they have the option to even do a part-time daycare, then there are, you know, preschool or whatever you want to call it, then there are two benefits that I see. One is socialization and, and skills of being around other children. And there is an educational component to it as well. And I think also a lot of people would agree that even if you're at home and you're able to educate your child a lot, uh, they sometimes learn differently and perhaps slightly better from mm -hmm. someone else. Right. So uh, anyone who did any type of remote learning in the 2020 would agree with that. <laughs> it is hard to teach your kids. I love teachers uh, and they deserve all of the accolades in the world. But so the second point is, is it better for their immune system or not? Personally, I feel any child that has never been exposed to germs until they go to kindergarten uh, really suffers in kindergarten. They get sick to a really extreme extent because they've never been exposed to anything. Uh, and so that first year of kindergarten, I've seen them just land in the hospital randomly with pneumonia because they got their first cold, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do encourage that germ exposure, the hygiene hypothesis, was, which basically postulates that it's good to be around germs and not to be extra uber clean all the time. Right. So, and daycare provides that for you. And studies have shown that, that it is good for their immune system to get exposed to these germs early on in life with one, but, and this is the kicker. And this is what killed me as a parent when I was raising my kids. Uh, it's good to get exposed to germs, but you have to recover fully before being exposed to a second set of germs. And that is not often possible with working parents. So we didn't have the luxury to allow them the full 10 days <laughs> to get better, 10 to 14 days to get better before sending them back to daycare. But a lot of working mom, I'm sorry, stay-at-home moms are able to do that. If they, especially if they do like part-time daycare, the two to three days, if their child gets sick, uh, go ahead and keep them home. Keep them home until they're 100% better and then send them back when you're ready so that they can you know, be exposed to the next germ. But that has been shown in uh, studies to be the best way to expose a child's immune system to germs for a lifelong, hopefully strong immune system. Yes. And, and I love that. Uh, the approach that I take a lot of times when parents ask me, I kind of tell them something similar that you say, whenever they copying. decide, <laughs> this is a little different though, but I do tell them that regardless of when they go to school, whether it's daycare at one years of age or school at five years of age, we all can agree that they're going to go through that period where they're going to get sick, you know? So whenever you are mentally prepared to handle that, um, it's something for you to be aware of. And I see a lot of families do struggle in those early periods too, in daycare it's when they're hard. It's really hard because they're toddlers. They're not 
not, you know, their entire routine gets thrown off. Parents are having to take off of work and they're just sick, you know, several times a month, like the average child that gets sick three times a month on average, you know, and with each illness lasting a week or two, it's, it pretty much feels like they're sick all the time, you know, because they are, (laughs) because they are exactly. So, you know, in a caveat, you know, this is, this is 2020 aside (laughs) with the pandemic that has changed a lot of things, but Uh, typically uh, speaking, it is, they're going to go through that period of immunity where they're building immunity. So I, I approach it in the sense where if daycare is something that you have to rely on, it's okay. If they're getting sick at that age, it's only going to help them in the future when they're in school, they're going to have that immunity. But if they're not able to go to daycare and if parents are keeping them home, it's okay. They will get exposed later. Um, but also to not keep them in that little bubble at that age and expose them, take them outside on playgrounds. Yeah. You know, there's germs everywhere. <laughs> there's no yes. shortage of germs. So play I dates, think- you know, And hopefully by the time this podcast is on air, then we'll be, you know, halfway closer to being able to have safe play dates again. Yes, because kids need to get dirty. They need to get into things. And uh, it really does expose them to to the building blocks of their immunity. So we we never want to be uh, completely putting them in that bubble. But I, I get how parents really worry. And I've seen parents in my own practice pull them out of daycare at one and a half because they've had a rough six months and they're like, we can't do this. We can't see our little baby being sick all the time. And I understand that, you know, I understand that plea. Um, but I kind of put into per- perspective that if you're taking them out for just this purpose alone, this is going to happen regardless of when they're going to be in school, you know? And, and so, um, definitely with the guidance of your pediatrician, right? Um, Absolutely. That happened to me with my second daughter. She had tubes, ear tubes placed because she was yeah. getting sick so often. And despite the medical knowledge that I had, I had some serious doubts about whether I should continue daycare for her or not, because the whole, I can't do this is so real, <laughs> so real and so, so hard. Powerful. Yeah. And I was like, all this medicine cannot possibly be good for her. So, uh, you know, but we did, we powered through and, and, and then eventually she came out on the other side and barely gets sick now. So yes. uh, it does, there is a silver lining, but anyone who's going through that, I totally relate. And yes. And the only, I think, exception that I, where I really give my input in terms of, no, I really think this is the best for you to keep the child out of daycare is if they were extreme preemies or they have multiple medical conditions where, you know, they could, their life could really be at risk from getting sick, um, as we've seen. But that's, that's rare. Most healthy children, they need to be exposed and they need to be uh, building that immune system, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's move on to question two. Hopefully question one was, uh, you know, educational for people. So that question one, for those who are just tuning in was, should I put my child in daycare or not? So Anna and I touched upon that and uh, we'll move on to question two, another frequently asked question of the PD pals and probably every pediatrician on the planet is when to introduce solids. Yes. I got it. 
Yes. Um, yeah. this is a, this is a popular one. And we actually, our third episode was about picky eating. And we did touch on this episode, uh, about introducing solids and about food introduction. So this is a big one. And, and just as a disclaimer, all of these topics in alone, you know, by themselves could be a whole podcast. So <laughs> we're just touching on the highlights of, of kind of what we recommend. Um, but I usually say that the best time is between four to six months of infancy to start introduction of solids. Children develop head control at different ages. So whenever children are able and um, willing to try solids, I usually say as early as four months. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, there is a uh, study that we often do uh, reference. The LEAP study really did show an evidence that early introduction to solids is key for reducing the risk of food allergies, meaning if uh, if it's safe, so there's, there's different scenarios, there's preemies, there's other things that are at play, but if it's safe and head control is one of the factors to keep in mind as well. It, that we sh- we do recommend starting at four months with, I always say veggies first. I don't want them to get used to the sweets. So I'd like them to do veggies first and then fruits and then the rest of the, the clan. Uh, and actually, I don't really recommend rice cereal in most scenarios. How is, uh, how do you feel about that? Yes, I agree. I think rice cereal, the situations where I would recommend using it, a lot of people tend to put it in bottles and mix their milk with it and and use it as a thickening agent as well. Spit up a lot or or losing weight because of the split spit up. I tend to use rice cereal as as thickening for that, but I think it is a lot of empty calories, and I usually encourage them to try more of the veggies, the fruits, working our way up to um, uh, eggs, peanut butter, those allergy foods, and early introduction of those to reduce development of future allergies. So I think just getting them exposed to more and more food, um, you know, as opposed to just having empty calories is, is what I prefer. I totally agree. And with rice cereal too, a few years back, there were some reports, um, whether they were truly validated or not, you know, well, remains to be seen, but there were some trace elements of arsenic found in rice cereal. Mm -hmm. After I heard that, and I realized that it's just an empty calorie vessel really, and that didn't have much nutritional value anyway, I stopped recommending rice cereal. So uh, the one other thing I wanted to touch upon real quick with regards to solids that it reminded me of is I see a lot of people, and I wonder if this might be either a misconception or perhaps possibly something that's traditionally been handed down from generation to generation, but I do not condone putting baby food in the milk and then drinking the bottle. Have you seen that? Yes. I've seen people ask me if that's okay to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that the short answer to that is no. Baby food is meant to be given with a spoon. Baby food is meant to be done sitting up, uh, propped up and baby food um, involves getting dirty. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So children need to feel, 
the, the biggest take home is, is the first year of life, their main calorie intake is going to be the milk, the breast milk, the formula. Um, but we are introducing these solids to get them used to all the textures and the flavors. And all the studies show that if we start introducing it earlier and we get children really involved in these foods, that they are less likely to be as picky later on, um, have less allergies later on, and just be used to the food. So I tell parents not to be stressed if they throw the food, you know, if they fling it across the room, they grab it, they get dirty, um, you know, not to be worried by that they're exploring, you know, this is a natural process where they're exploring the textures, the flavors, the, uh, the feels of it. And they're really just trying to get accustomed to it. And so it's okay for them to have a little here, a little there, not to be panicked, try again, if they're, you know, spitting it out of their mouth. Um, so all that is normal part of infancy. Now, after one year of age, when we're going to rely less on the milk and we're going to rely more on food, that's where, um, that's where we really uh, place emphasis on the foods. But right now it's just getting used to it. Totally. Yeah. One of the things I found the most fascinating actually with, with regards to these studies was when they looked at Israel. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Israel has a really low incidence of peanut allergy and they were trying to figure out uh, why that was the case and what could we learn from that. And, and then they realized that it had to do with them introducing Bamba or peanut paste at yeah. an early age. I believe they do it starting at two or three months. Yes. And so they thought, you know, that was kind of the key of, is this, is this the clue? Is this why we need to consider introducing solids and allergens at an early age so that uh, babies build immunity to these high allergen foods? Uh, but before they could know for sure, what they actually studied was whether or not someone from Israel had that uh, same incidence mm -hmm. of peanut allergy if they lived in another country. So if someone was an immigrant uh, from Israel, but they had moved to the UK or to England, uh, how was their, you know, were they less allergic than the average American? Mm -hmm. And and that would indicate that, the, that they just have the gene, right? But then they noticed that when they moved to other countries, they actually had the same incidence of peanut allergies as the country in which they moved. So it was not a, ge a genetic thing. It was a cultural thing. And that's what led them to understand that early introduction was so helpful. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so it really does, uh, really does, starting early really does help a lot. Um, no, I love that study. And initially, once I talked to parents about peanut, peanut introduction specifically, another thing I mentioned is, you know, all the different peanut products that are out there. So besides just peanut butter, there's Bamba, there's peanut oil, there's peanut powder, there's different things. But another good trick is to incorporate it about three times a week so that, you know, you don't just introduce it once and then forget about it. Yes. Um, that's also known to increase uh, the incidence of peanut allergy as well, but to keep the body having a steady amount of peanuts through the week um, really does help. Um, and with egg products as well, that, you know, if they were to have a slight sensitivity to egg in one form to incorporate it in a different form. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've heard that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very complicated. You're right. We could have a whole podcast just on solid introduction and maybe we should, maybe that's a good idea for a future episode. 
So definitely send more questions um, to our website uh, so that you can, if you have more questions about all these topics that we touch on, uh, we can definitely cover them in future podcasts. Yes. So, or you could go on our social media at the PD pals. <laughs> shameless yes. plug. Shameless and plug. <laughs> we will be happy to answer your questions there too. Yes. And the third topic is also about feeding. And I love this question because this is something we talk about. I think almost every season, all the time, every week, we're always talking about this, um, how to feed sick children. So when children get sick, when they're vomiting, how do we go about feeding them so we don't end up in the ER um, and have them be dehydrated? How do you approach this question? I split it into three categories, uh, just to make it simple. The first category is clear liquids. The second category is full liquids. And the third category is what I would call advanced as tolerated, which is actually a medical term, but it means just go ahead and feed them um, freely. So every child when they're sick is not going to want to eat very much. Uh, it happens specifically even more when they have a fever and that's okay. Even though it's kind of scary, it's normal. And I always try to reassure families, don't worry about it because they're going to eat double when they feel better. And this is very normal and they're just protecting themselves. The thing to focus on is to hydrate because children can get dehydrated really quickly and dehydration might need a trip to the emergency room. So in order to keep them hydrated, the first and foremost thing that you should be focusing on is for them to be uh, drinking as much as possible. So if they're willing to freely drink, great. That's when you want to do the Pedialyte or watered down juice or water, something clear, something you can see through. If they're not willing to drink for you, then I recommend giving them one sip every five minutes. That's kind of an easy rule of thumb. Uh, I've even had a situation where my first daughter wouldn't even do that as she was like in her toddler phase and she was refusing just the sip every five minutes. So at that time, my pediatrician taught me to put it in a, in a syringe mm -hmm. to put like the Pedialyte in a syringe that you would feed them medicine through. And I would just squirt it in her mouth every five minutes um, and blow in her face. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're welcome, Nicole. Um, <laughs> So, um, yeah, so first things first, make sure that they're well hydrated and how do you know they're well hydrated? They would be giving you plenty of wet diapers, uh, and they would have a relatively good energy level. You can also talk to your pediatrician. They can kind of educate you on other ways to tell whether they're well hydrated, like whether they have good tear production and what their skin looks like and whatnot. And then once you are, once you see that they're able to tolerate that clear liquid and they're not throwing up. And I usually say, you know, it's a few hours. It's okay if it's even up to 12 hours. Then you can move on to the next phase, which is the full liquids. So that means anything in a liquid form like soup. And then once they can tolerate that, then you go to anything. You If they say, I'm hungry, you say, what are you hungry for? And you can give them that. So uh, typically kids are really intuitive. They know what they can and can't handle when they're sick. So they actually tend to pick the food that they're going to be best with, uh, that they're going to tolerate best. So whatever they say they're hungry for is okay to give them, even if it's a particularly high calorie or unseemingly, uh, nutritious food. What do you think about the brat diet? Cause we get asked about that a lot. First of all, what is the brat diet? And then what do you think about it? 
Yeah. So the Brad diet is something that was used by families and pediatricians in the past where we would incorporate um, different foods that were uh, a little bit more bland to, to help their stomachs handle it a little bit better. So usually consisting of bananas for B, R is rice, A is applesauce, and T is toast. So now all of the studies that we've noticed show that the BRAT diet doesn't necessarily help kids recover quicker than normal. Um, And the key is to give their gut some rest first. So exactly what you mentioned is what I tell them. I kind of explain it like if you're sick, if you've gotten food poisoning, you don't feel like eating, right? You look at food, you're nauseous. um, You try to eat, your stomach is sick on the inside. Anything that goes in is going to come out one way or the other, right? Um, And so kids feel the same way. Even if they're not actively throwing up, when they have a fever, they don't feel good. They don't necessarily want to eat. And parents do tend to panic. And that's the first thing is don't panic. Um, Because a lot of times when they've thrown up, you feel stressed that they're going to quickly get dehydrated. So that is the time where you don't try to feed them again. Um, You pretty much stop. Uh, you let their bodies recover because they're not going to immediately get dehydrated within the span of an hour or 30 minutes or a couple hours, right? They do have some reserve, but over that time, we take away the food, like you mentioned, and we do little sips of clear liquid. So whatever you can get popsicles are great because they can lick on the clear liquids, right? And um, they can kind of absorb it through their saliva. So even if their tummy, uh, you know, they take a big gulp of of Pedialyte and their tummies can't handle it, sometimes they'll vomit that too. So popsicles, I think, are a great resource or little ice chips, flavored ice chips. I think those are are helpful. But I love the syringe idea because it's almost like you're giving them medicine. You're just giving them fluids a little bit at a time. Um, So I always tell parents not to... Uh, not to panic and to uh, try when they're ready and they're more alert and they've had their fluids, they're urinating, then try a a bland food item uh, or whatever they want, like you said. And if they throw it up, that's okay. We're not ready. We're going to go back to the clear liquids. Um, We are going to stay hydrated and out of the ER. But those I think are the biggest pearls. Um, But I don't know if you agree about the brat diet, but it seems like a lot of the studies are showing that it's not as important as we once thought it was. At least not for children. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have much value in children. So you don't have to restrict any food. Uh, I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, this being sick is one of the few scenarios in which I allow uh, unhealthier food. So I totally agree. I love popsicles. Not only does it hydrate them, but it also cools them down from the inside slushies are okay. If the first thing that they ask for is McDonald's, I'll make a face, but I will also say it's okay. I'll allow it. It's high calorie. Let them have it. They probably can handle it. Right. What do you think about, I get this one question a lot about breast milk and milk, especially in the, the, the infants and the toddlers, when they're sick, their milk is comfort, right? But it's not necessarily a clear liquid. So how do you approach that question? In a word, fine. It's not ideal. It's not a clear liquid, right? You can't see through milk. But for starters, breast milk, that's totally 100% fine. Not only is it hydrating, uh, it's sometimes the best thing for babies and infants. So go right ahead, as much breast milk as they'll take. 
Uh, and also breast milk has immune properties. It has antibodies in it. And so it actually helps fight off illness sooner and it, it helps them recover. So absolutely 100% on the breast milk. Now, if you're talking about whole milk or 2% milk, it's not my first choice, but guess what? The baby doesn't care what my first choice is. So if that's the only thing they're going to drink, I wouldn't withhold it because that will also keep them hydrated. It's still a liquid. So if they're right. not throwing the milk up, then, right. and that's the only thing they want, I'm fine with it. Yeah, exactly. I think if they can keep it down, it's fine as long as they're getting hydrated. Uh, definitely another little trick that we can try. We don't want to dilute the milk, uh, especially in infants, because we don't want them to get, um, you know, just only water. We want some electrolytes as well, um, because their sodium levels can drop. They're really, really small infants, um, you know, six months and under. So another little trick is you can take clear Pedialyte and sometimes mix it with formula as well so that it's not full strength if the baby is throwing up. But yeah, I totally agree that let them have it if they can keep it down, right? Totally. All right. Well, I think we answered that one quite well, if I do say so myself. <laughs> well done. Back. Yeah. Uh, so shall we move on to the next one? So, so far, just to kind of recap for our audience, we've answered, should I put my, my child in daycare or not? Uh, when to introduce solids? How to feed sick children? And then for question number four, uh, Nighttime routines for school-age kids. Specifically, the question was, how um, do you help your kids fall asleep? What kind of sleep hygiene do you recommend? Right. You want to take this one first? You want me to? I would love to take this one. <laughs> so <laughs> Go for it. I think most parents have this one down, though, honestly. Uh, nighttime routine is one, one thing that most parents read about in their baby books or have been told about someone. So they, they all know that if you could try to keep the same routine every night, that'd be great. And how do you want to do that? Do you want to incorporate bath at nighttime? Do you want to tell a story? Do you want to have some music? All of that is great. I love all of those things. I would say if you have the time, a nice soothing bath is wonderful. Having soothing music in the background is wonderful as well. If you do the same thing every night, by the way, it will help uh, their children start to recognize that it's getting close to bedtime. And so their bodies will relax and they'll be more willing and able to fall asleep quicker. And then um, tell them a story, read them a book. All of that's wonderful. I personally love to end the day on a positive note. So have a, a couple of minute chat, quick chat about how was your day? What did you learn? Um, what are your intentions for your sleep and your next day? To me, that helps set the tone for what kind of night they're going to have. And uh, that's what I recommend. What about you? I love that. I love that so much. We are going to talk about sleep so much that you will be probably tired of it, <laughs> but we really are big advocates. <laughs> We're going to keep talking about it. We actually had a sp sleep expert on one of our podcasts. So, um, you'll be, uh, being, you will be able to listen to that too, which we get give great pearls about helping our, uh, our kids sleep train and get good sleep. But sleep is such a huge topic. It's vital. I think a sleep hygiene routine is a must. Um, as the holidays just kind of came and went, you've, you've probably noticed, especially with toddlers that, um, you know, there's sometimes more irritability, fatigue, and more temper tantrums around the holidays. Right. And a lot of times, why do we notice that? Because our routine is all thrown off right in the holidays. We're sleeping late. I mean, 
it's fun. We're hanging out with family. Um, it's all part of the fun, but it really does illustrate the point that toddlers, kids, they love routine as much as they will try to convince you otherwise, right? <laughs> that they want to play this video game for another hour, or they want to, you know, watch this show for a little bit longer. They really do need that routine. So I love what you said about setting a routine, doing it at the same time every day they will thank you for it later when they're less irritable, less tamper tantrums during the day. So uh, I definitely totally agree with that. The only other things I would add is sometimes um, a cooler room, some air circulation, those all help with better uh, helping them sleep a little bit better. I love what you said about setting intentions at night. I think this is a great time to kind of have a bonding moment with kids. So however you choose to do that, whether it's reading a book that they like. And I, I usually tell parents kind of make them a participant, not on in the very small babies, of course, but the, the three to five-year-olds, you know, let them pick out a book to read or a toy at bath time or do something fun like that where they can look forward to their bedtime routine. So it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not like pulling hair to get them to their bed, but little things like intention or spending extra time with mom or dad or cuddling. I think that's, that's really will help, help you get to that routine a little bit easier. Very well said. Okay. We're getting close to the end. So uh, the last question, which I also thought was an excellent question and probably you and I could talk about it forever was uh, how do you pick a pediatrician if you're an expectant mom? Yes, this is so often I've had um, expectant moms and dads come to our office to actually meet us initially before the baby arrives, which I do love that um, I tell them that, you know, they're it's difficult. It's difficult to to pick a pediatrician and it's hard to get to get uh for them to know us that quickly too. So it's definitely something that's an ever evolving process in my mind. Um, usually I uh, tell expectant moms kind of how I approach medicine, what things I value. Um, and, and usually I will approach it that way on, on where I'm coming from. But I think the biggest thing that I emphasize to them that at, if at any point they feel uncomfortable or they feel like, you know, we, uh, we're not connecting in a certain way or we're not relating in a certain way to not be afraid to let us know because uh, we're, we don't take offense, you know, <laughs> different people might work differently together um, and they might just click. Well, there's different personalities. There's different uh, doctors have different approaches to different things. Medicine is a, is a, is an art is practice. So um, basically it's important to, to find someone that you can be open with, be honest with and communicate with. I think that is the biggest thing. If you're not able to do that, you're not comfortable asking your stupid questions and all of your questions, then what really is the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you just call me stupid? <laughs> Listen, I am not disclosing any patient information. Okay. <laughs> so I felt, I felt like you were looking at me when you said that. <laughs> I totally agree with your, what you said. I totally agree that, and I really, the, the, biggest part of what you said that I, I liked the most was the part where you said that if it's not working out, don't hesitate to, to switch. My, my input on how you, how you should pick a pediatrician would be ask your friends, especially someone that you're like-minded with. Uh, if you don't have any friends, 
feel free to do your research online, Google. Take uh, patient reviews with a grain of salt, though, because uh, there's always a little bit more to the story than what you might be reading online. Uh, and we're not allowed to defend ourselves online. So it's a one-way road with, with those online reviews. So just, just keep that in mind. There's sometimes a little bit more to it than what's been put out there. But um, feel free to do your research. And you can do, if your pediatrician accepts uh, prenatal interviews, you can do an interview and, and just talk and see what their philosophies are. And if your philosophies match, I totally believe that that's really important because the whole doctor-patient relationship is about trust. So right. there are going to be times where you're not going to know a lot about what's going on and you need to hundred percent trust your doctor. And I'm not saying they're going to be right all the time, but you at least feel that they have your best interest at heart and they're making the best decision for you and your child. And so I, I think it's the best advice you've ever given what you just said a few minutes ago, oh. that if it's not <laughs> ever Anna, ever, ever. Um, <laughs> I'm going to write this down and I'm going to tell you about it. Later. <laughs> and then it's going to be immortalized on the internet. So I can never take this back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, the best advice, what was that best advice again? Yeah, yeah. I'm about to say, it. hold on. Um, is that if it's not working out, don't hesitate to move on. It's okay. Doctors know it is patients come and go, we're not going to take offense. And actually, if you're not feeling like it's a good relationship, chances are your doctor's not feeling it too. So try not to force it. Don't put their round peg in the square hole. We're talking about your healthcare and your child's healthcare. So it should be the best fit that you can find possible. Uh, Don't settle essentially. Um, So I agree. I think that's great. Um, Go online, ask your friends, do your research meet the doctor, see if you mesh, uh, and good luck. Yes. I think the biggest thing is also like your basic philosophies. Like you mentioned things that are really important to you. I would communicate that early on, say, this is really important to me. Uh, and what are your thoughts about this? And if it's something that you, something fundamental that you don't agree with, uh, for example, with vaccines or with any other topic, there's something that you feel really strongly about and it's not something that you can come to a consensus with, then that's probably not going to be the best fit for you for the next 18 years. So uh, definitely don't be afraid to tell, to, to talk to your pediatrician and really tell them things that are important to them and then hear theirs as well. So I love that. And you know, what's interesting too, I was just thinking about our personal situation, mm-hmm. uh, where we, you know, we work in a practice where there's three women and we actually practice very similarly in the sense that we would treat the same conditions in the same way. We have the same philosophy and we read the same evidence-based medicine. And so, and we follow bright futures, AAP guidelines for the most part. However, the three of us have very different personalities. And so, uh, you know, So one patient just might be better suited for you. And despite the fact that you and I would treat their child probably the exact same way, uh, and then another one might be better suited for me or other partner. I feel like the three of us are actually on the spectrum of laid backness. Uh, Our (laughs) other partner is is, uh, whatever the opposite of laid back is. (laughs) She she refers to herself as... As organized and OCD, I'll take that. I think I'm in the middle and I think you're the most laid back. Yeah. And I think it's the way 
we approach uh, certain things and how we explain it, you, we could all say the same thing, um, but different people hear it in different ways, right? And so that's where the personalities really do come in. Like you said, um, <laughs> we we definitely have our little particular uh, patients uh, that really we can tell, okay, that's a Dr. Armin patient. Yes, <laughs> and yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it definitely is really interesting how that happens. So don't be afraid um, to find someone that you really click with because it's a, it's a long relationship and we really cherish it and we want you to as well. Yeah. And I wanted to give an example of what I mean by doctors who practice the same way, but who have different styles. Well, one is the way, obviously we talk, talk to the patient, right? So uh, are you able to connect with each other and are you able to have a, you know, feel comfortable. But the second, I remember there was this one scenario where um, this particular parent, uh, the medication that was prescribed to them needed to be given four times a day. And uh, (laughs) my partner, this patient belonged to my partner, and my partner would tell them the times that the four times a day needs to be. And so when they had seen me, the mom took out a pencil and a pad and said, what times do I need to give it? And I chuckled because I I thought she was kidding. (laughs) I never I never do that because I don't know what your life is like. And I don't want to impose like, what if I don't know, what if you're napping at that time? And then I'm telling you to wake up from the nap to give the medication. I don't want to do it like that. So I say do the four times a day that works with you, but that'll give you some guidelines on how far apart the medication doses should be. So but my other partner is very strict on what times those four times a day would be. Guess what? Neither of us is right or wrong. It's just a different style. Right. And some people respond to that where they want a direct time. They want yes. that schedule, right? And so, some people are like, no, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> you know, yes. and that's where the personalities and the styles really come through because you know, I try to say, listen, this is the exact do's that I need you to do. All of this is the variability, but some people can't handle that as well. They're like, no, I need you to tell me the exact times. And so I think that's why her parent patients love her because, you know, she will do that for them. She absolutely will. She's awesome. All right. So we're getting to the end of the episode. So we've answered the five questions and another big thanks again to the people who uh, provided us with the content for this episode. Uh, That was a lot of fun to to go through those questions. I hope we can do one of these um, frequently asked question episodes again in the future. And if you liked it, please share it with all your friends. Please uh, rate and review this podcast. Uh, It really does help to get uh, as much feedback as possible and it helps keep us going and it helps us grow uh, as we continue to provide this podcast for you. Uh, Just so you know, we're here for you. That's the whole reason PD Pals came to be was because we wanted to provide this information for a wider audience. We wanted to be here for a wider audience and make a bigger impact. We get it. We're doing this every day. We're seeing people one-on-one and we want to do, we want to bring this to the comfort of your home as well. So the more you interact with us and the more you engage and the more you tell your friends, uh, the more we can do for you. 
Right. And, and like I mentioned before, no question is a silly question or a stupid question. If except you have a question, <laughs> except for the ones she asks, <laughs> exactly. Because we, if you have thought of that question, that means many, many other people have, and we really do get gratification from answering those questions and providing um, that service being there just to answer those questions. So it really does mean a lot to us that you trust us and that you ask us these questions. So don't stop asking, but thank you. I really did have a lot of fun. I think we need to do more of these um, top five questions. I love totally it. Totally agree. So stay tuned. There are plenty more wonderful episodes coming up in the near future in 2021, uh, which is going to be all of our year. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> don't don't speak too loudly. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you all. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.